Okay. This is week three, Miracles on the Water, Even the Wind and Waves, Obayi, Now There are some commonalities in the miracles that we studied this week. One word answers only. What are some commonalities? Water. Water. What else? Wind. Wind. Yes. What else? Jesus is in all of them. <laughs> Who else is in? The disciples. There's a boat, right, in all of them. And the setting is the same, the Sea of Galilee, right? There are some differences as well. You know, Peter is mentioned um, in two of them. The location of Jesus is different. Did you notice that? He's in the boat. He's on the water. He's up praying. He's on the shore. Um, and then the timing is different. The, the last one is after his death and resurrection, and the others are before. Let's start out um, with prayer, and then we'll talk about the setting. Father, we thank you for this day that you have made, and we are rejoicing in it even now as we get to sit here and listen to your spirit, who we are trusting will be our teacher this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so let's talk about the setting. And I realize in this setup, I can't run and point because I guess I could, but I've already walked five miles this morning, so I don't want to. So I'm just going to, I want to show you a few things on the, on the map um, for those of us that are visual learners. This is Israel at the time of Jesus, and there are some key places. Notice Bethlehem. It's down there in the brown-orange. Do you see Bethlehem? That, of course, is where he was born, and that's straight from the prophecy, Micah 5.2. Then he grew up in Nazareth. Now, that's in the yellow. See Nazareth? That's up there in the yellow. Again, there, um, that also is prophesied. He died in Jerusalem. That's Zechariah 9.9. That's in the yellow. Uh, that, excuse me, that's back in the brown and orange. Now, most of his three-year ministry happened in Galilee. See it in the red box on the top in the north? Most of his ministry happened up there in the area known as Galilee. And that actually also was prophesied in Isaiah 9, 1 through 2. Well, after Jesus left Nazareth, he arrived in Capernaum. And everybody really thought he would probably, even in hindsight, set up camp in Jerusalem, right? That was the capital. That was where the temple was. Uh, that was where all the best Jews were. We're in Jerusalem, and he passed that ride on by and went up to Capernaum, right there on the Sea of Galilee, and that's where he had his home base for his entire years of ministry. So let's look closer at Galilee now. Galilee was a Roman province, and it was actually a cultural melting pot, cultural crossroads where people from all around the Roman Empire lived there in Galilee. The Jews tried to live apart, from the Hellenist, but it was very difficult to live apart from them because they were all there. The upper Galilee, the most upper part, the most north part on that map, um, didn't have cities, didn't have populace because of its terrain. I tried to get a top, topographical map um, to show, can you see those are all mountains up there it's, it's a very difficult area to live in so there's really no cities in it it's more rural and remote the region of the Decapolis do you see that on the lower right hand part of your map the Decapolis there, those were ten Hellenistic cities and they were, they were lo loosely controlled by Rome 
And there was a large Roman military presence there guarding that eastern frontier to the whole region. But the cities were bastions of Greek Hellenism back then in that Decapolis region. So, and the religious Jews actually tried to avoid the Decapolis. So when you hear in these miracles that he's going there, that's really a, an area that the Jews did not want to have anything to do with, or the, is that part. Now, the west side of the lake, it was under the control of the Tetrarch Herod Antipas. That was the son of Herod the Great. It was the new capital of the Galilee region. It was a lakeside resort, actually, that he built. But he built it on top of a graveyard. And so the Jews felt like that was an unclean place to even be because of how it was built. There were also, still today, there were salt um, bodies of water, salt springs, that were uh, even back then deemed, oh, this is healthy if you're sick. So a lot of sick people were drawn to this area. So when you see Jesus going there to heal, he's going right amongst the sick people where the Jews are saying, oh, that's dirty ground you're walking on. Okay, all right, let's keep going. All right, um, Magdala, who was from there? Mary, that's where she was. See, all of these are right there on the Sea of Galilee. Gennesaret, according to the Gospel of Mark, Jesus passes through Gennesaret right after he walks on the water. So your miracle on days two and three, he goes straight to Gennesaret. And scripture says, all those who touched the edge of his cloak are healed. So can you picture him walking through and everybody that touches him is healed. Now, does it make more sense why the adulteress, uh, I mean, excuse me, why the woman with the bleeding, uh, thank you, why the woman with the bleeding issue just wants to touch his hand? Okay, all right, let's keep going. Gosh, I just want to stay with y'all in so many of these places we cannot. Capernaum, you see that on the map right there, the northern side of the Sea of Galilee? That was the center of the fishing industry. That's also where Jesus called Matthew, the tax collector, was from Capernaum. He's believed to have given the Sermon on the Mount on the shores of the sea near Capernaum. Peter's mother-in-law was healed here. My favorite story in the New Testament, the foreman. Do you get to talk about that, Cheryl? Are you the one? Do you get to talk about the four men that carry their friend? I don't know. Oh, she doesn't. <laughs> she doesn't know, but I think she is. We switched out lessons. So. Oh, yeah. It may be Gretchen's. That story happened right there in Capernaum. The Roman officer's slave, Capernaum. The leper, the man with an evil spirit. So you see, are you starting to see where all these miracles are taking place? Bethsaida was also a fishing center. It was large, two to 3,000 people. That's a large town for that day, larger than Nazareth and Capernaum, which were more like around 400 people. Simon Peter, Andrew, and Philip were all from Bethsaida. That's where he heals the blind man. Capernaum, do you see there's a triangle between Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida? That was called the Evangelical Triangle because that's the small area where most of Jesus' miracles were performed in, the, between, in that area. Now, interestingly, all three of those cities are actually cursed by Jesus because they do not repent. And that's where he did most of his miracles. Okay, um, 
You can read about that in Matthew 11 if you want to hear Jesus' words against those cities, Matthew 11. Cana, just one, one more thing I wanted to, because that's where the first miracle was done, right? Look in the yellow area. It's not right there on the Sea of Galilee. See it over to the side. That's where the first miracle that um, Jesus performed at the wedding, remember? So, okay, that's the Sea of Galilee. He taught by the shore. He taught in a boat from the water. He crossed the sea numerous times. He calmed the sea. He walked on the sea. So the Sea of Galilee, a little bit closer. I'm guessing in a room this size, several of you have been there. Have you been there? Mm-hmm. I was scared to death to go on our boat ride because I'm like, I know a storm can <laughs> <laughs> And then it was horrible because I was in charge of the music for the trip. And while we're on the boat, uh, the leader said, Rhonda, lead us in. Um, I have decided to follow Jesus. And I, I was crying, and I, I'm like, oh. <laughs> oh, my goodness gracious. 13 miles long, seven and a half miles wide. The circumference is about 32 miles. I was trying to relate it to something we might know here. Lake Geneva is 26 miles. So if that kind of gives you a, a feel for it, it's 700 feet below uh, sea level, the lowest freshwater lake on the entire planet. It's set in the hills of, you already saw from that map how there are hills on that one side. There are actually hills all around it. 1,400 feet above sea levels are the hills of Galilee. Remember, it's the lowest, so it's 700 feet below. Now you have these 1,400 feet, and it gets more. The mountains of the Golan Heights, which was called the Decapolis in Jesus' day. Remember that area down in the bottom? Reach more than 2,500 feet. So that's why these storms could rise up like that. Because you, you're wondering, wouldn't the fishermen know they're fishermen? Come on. That's really how it works there. All right. So this is a picture of a, a storm actually approaching on the Sea of Galilee. Jerusalem perspective, we're going to skip this. It's the scientific reason why there could be storms and waves as high as 20 feet. Which, I don't know, two weeks ago, the waves on Lakeshore from Lake Michigan were 23 feet. Um, this is a photo entitled, After a Storm on the Sea of Galilee. And I just loved it because I picture that. What, that's what it must have been like when Jesus said, peace be still. And when Jesus stepped in the boat and the other miracle and the water just got just like that. Well, this is how our... Our miracles start, at least this is how it starts, right? Calm and beautiful. How many of you looked up the picture, the Rembrandt picture? Did you do that? Good. Were you able to find all the men? No. It was a little bit hard. I'm not going to lie. This picture is actually five feet by four feet. I'm five foot four, so it's almost as big as me. And a little bit wider than me. It's a little bit wider than me. Is how big that picture is. It's stolen. It's still gone. It's missing. I put on your handout, if you're interested, you can click on that, and uh, that is a, a masterpiece explanation on YouTube of the painting, and I just found it really interesting, so if you're interested. This is his only ski, seascape. It depicts a mighty, dangerous, desperate, stormy situation, wouldn't you say? We already said the waves could get how high? 20 feet. Now the boat, the boat actually looked different than what Rembrandt painted it. This is, in 1986, this 2,000-year-old boat was discovered in Israel on the Sea of Galilee, right on the Sea of Galilee, in Migdala, or Migdal, it's called both. 
Uh, an excerpt from the director of the excavation from the Institute of Nautical, Edu uh, Nautical Archaeology from Texas A&M says this. Research reveals beyond reasonable doubt that this is the type of boat mentioned in the Gospels used by the disciples of Jesus. So this has been referred to as two things, ancient Galilee boat or the Jesus boat. And if you go to Israel, you will be taken to see the Jesus boat. This boat is also consistent with mosaics that were found in tiles in the same area of Magdala. So it is believed this is how the boat looks. Now, how many of you have been to the Viking boat? In, yeah, in Geneva. It was Good Templar Park last time. I don't think they moved it. Well, they did the same thing with this one. They did a reconstruction of it. And so this is the replica that they believe looked like the boat that Jesus would have been in. It could hold 15 men, including four rowers and a helmsman. It was 26 and a half feet long, 7 and a half feet wide, 4 and a half feet high. It probably had both fore and aft decks, a central mast, and a sail, with positions for two sets of rowers or oars on each side. So the boat, from the wall to here, that's how long the boat was. Lest we think this was some gigantic boat they were on. That's as big as the boat. It was as wide as from that wall to here. So at its widest point, this is how wide the boat was. Now, I'm five foot four almost, and the boat was this tall. And of course, some of it set in the water. So I don't know how much set in the water. They didn't tell me that. <laughs> but some of it set in the water. How high do we say the winds could get, the waves could get? 20 feet. Let's say it wasn't even that bad a storm. Let's cut the storm in half. 10 feet. How big is the, how, how tall is the side? It's twice as big as this. If it was a 20-foot storm, four times. As, so this is a storm, people, and it's a small boat. Lest we, you know, sometimes we think of, how many of you have been on cruise ships in bad weather? Yeah, okay, I'll wear a patch behind my ear in good weather. How many of you have been deep sea fishing? Oh, gosh, that would be bad. Yeah, deep sea fishing, caught, caught a shark in Galveston, and it was horrific because the boat was tossing, and it wasn't even a storm. So this is the setting that we find. It makes sense why even the fishermen then, professional fishermen, were scared to death. They literally thought they were going to die. All right, so we've already studied the passage. I'm going to put it up here just so you'll have it. This is the passage we read. The gospel parallels are on your handout there if you want to read the other articles. Let's talk about it. Whose great idea was it to get in the boat and cross to the other side of the lake? It was Jesus' idea. Have you ever felt that way? When you thought you would, you know what, I know some of you people have because somebody came up and confessed last time that they also thought of housewives for the word desperate. They just didn't want to say it in front of you. So I know that some of you in here have thought, whose great idea was this? I'm just simply obeying and now I am in the middle of a storm. That's exactly what happened to the disciples. So what, now what lesson? Obeying Jesus doesn't mean smooth sailing. Obeying Jesus does not mean smooth sailing. Let's go back to our passage. Who was in charge of the boat? The what? The disciples. Jesus wasn't in charge of the boat. 
Well, let's hope not, because he's sleeping, right? <laughs> and you've got, you've got almost half of the boat. Five people on the boat are fishermen. Why would Jesus be in charge of the boat? So you can imagine the five fishermen, one of them is in charge of the boat. It even reads that way. They took Jesus in the boat. Okay? So the disciples are in charge. Don't you wonder what happened to the other boats? Did you catch that in scripture? There were other boats that followed along. Did they see all of this or did they turn back? What happened to the other boats? I don't know. We're not told, so it must not matter. But I wonder. Verse 37 tells us about the fierce storm. What's Jesus doing? Sleeping with his head on a cushion. What do the disciples do? Now, in their defense, in their time of desperation, they do actually go to Jesus. But how do they go? Look at verse 38. Teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? That's pretty accusatory and questioning his compassion. Now, if I were Jesus, and any time I start out a sentence like that when I'm writing, I know it means, thank goodness I'm not, and I'm about to get it wrong. But if I were Jesus... Here are the disciples accusing the God of the universe who left heaven, humbled himself in the flesh, headed to the cross because he is the very definition of love and caring and compassion. And he tells them this in John 15 later. And this is who the disciples are accusing of not caring about them. Ludicrous. Perhaps this is why Jesus doesn't even answer the question with words. Do you notice that? Two of the three... Uh, you can read it in all in three of the Gospels. Two of them say that he doesn't even talk to them. One of them says that's when he asked the question, so we're going to go with two out of three, got it right. Two of them say he just talks to the storm at that point. He doesn't even speak to the disciples. Let's pause here before Jesus wakes up. How else could they have approached Jesus? Did you do this with your children? How else could we have said that? <laughs> what else could we have done? And that's exactly what I thought. <laughs> to go to Jesus was absolutely the right thing, but everything that everything else was wrong about it. Their approach, their words, everything. Now we know, of course, that they do not have the New Testament. They're in the course of living the New Testament, right? But they had the Old Testament. And they had been with Jesus and already seen him performing miracles. They heard him teach. They had heard and seen those with evil spirits yell out, Shrieking, you are the son of God, Mark 3.11, had already happened before this. They've seen and heard his authority to forgive sins with the paralyzed man. That happened before this. They didn't have the New Testament, but they had the Old Testament. Consider, all these are on your handout. What they knew about God. If he holds back the rain, the earth becomes a desert. If he releases the water, they flood the earth. He decided how hard the wind should blow and how much rain should fall. He assigned the sea its boundaries and locked the oceans in its vast reservoirs. And then in Amos, for the Lord is the one who shaped the mountains, stirs up the winds, and reveals his thoughts to mankind. He turns the light of dawn into darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord God of heaven's armies is his name. How many on the boat did we say were fishermen? Five of them. Now, if you had a job that there was a scripture about, would you not know that scripture? I do. I have two, one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament. And I love them dearly. And they're written on the inside of my Bible. Did you know there's a fisherman's psalm? The psalms were written by now. And they were being sung. There is a fisherman's psalm. We're going to skip this too. This is Psalm 107. 
This is the summary of it by F.B. Meyer. I'll just tell you, it's four accounts of distressed people groups, and each one go to God, and each one God saves. And one of those groups are fishermen. Mm -hmm. So this is known as the fisherman's song. So here's the mariner's portion. I wanted just to look at the beginning of the psalm, just the mariner's, mariner's portion. And I went to speech therapy in uh, elementary for my R's and in the middle of words, and this is it. Woo, this is hard. <laughs> and then at the end of Psalm, okay? Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his faithful love endures forever. Has the Lord redeemed you? Then speak out. Tell others he's redeemed you from your enemies. Some went off to sea in ships, plying the trade routes of the world. They too observed the Lord's power in action, his impressive works on the deepest seas. He spoke, and the winds rose, stirring up the waves. Their ships were tossed to the heavens and plunged again to the depths. The sailors cringed in terror. They reeled and staggered like drunkards and were at their wits' end. Lord, help! They cried in their trouble. And he saved them from their distress. He calmed the storm to a whisper and stilled the waves. What a blessing was that stillness as he brought them safely into harbor. Let them praise the Lord for his great love and for the wonderful things he's done for them. Let them each, let them exalt him publicly before the congregation and before the leaders of the nation. Those who are wise will take all this to heart. They will see in our history the faithful love of the Lord. Now, what if the fishermen, even just one of them, had begun singing that song? Or what if that is what Jesus woke up to? Or even if they spoke the words? Or just use some of the phrases from the other Old Testament scriptures we just looked at, which they all had and knew. I just wrote this from the psalm for myself. Lord, our ship is being tossed to the heavens and plunged again to the depths. We're cringing in terror. Please help. Please calm the storm to a whisper and still the waves. Bring us safely into harbor. We praise you, Lord, for your great love and for the wonderful things you have done for us. Well, now that would have been a little different approach, wouldn't it? <laughs> so what now what? I need to know what I know about who I know, especially in the storm. True, even in the midst of all the fields, as the young people say, I need to know what I know about who I know. Where is the sure place to know, to go about who I know? Where's the sure place? What? God's word, yes. And we still have it today. What a gift he has given to us. What a gift. Do you see that even if the disciples did not fully understand, did not recognize who Jesus was, that he was God in the flesh, they knew who God is. And that's who we have to lean on. All right, back to the boat. We're back in the boat. Back to the boat. Jesus is waking up. They actually, bless you, wake him up, not the storm, which for him sleeping, that's a miracle in itself. Verse 39, he doesn't answer their question with words. He does it with action. He, he calms the storm immediately. Actually, all three Gospels use the word suddenly. So like that, no more storm. All is calm. Jesus still does not answer their question. He asked them, and Mark, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Matthew, why are you afraid? You have so little faith. Luke, where is your faith? The so what, now what principle. Fear and faith go together like oil and water. 
The faith God desires for me to have in him leaves no room for fear, none, zero. Fear and faith are mutually exclusive. I cannot be fearful, in other, in other words, full of fear and full of faith at the same time. Our author commented on Psalm 46.10, our scripture verse for this year. Might the disciples have recognized that psalm? Might they have, when Jesus said, peace be still? Yeah, I think absolutely they did. Might they have thought of Isaiah 43, 1 through 5? Read that on your own. It's on your handout. At the end of the passage, we have another unanswered question. Do you notice that? This, I, this could have been called the unanswered question boat ride because nobody answers their question. None of the disciples answer Jesus' question. They talk to one another. And they all are marveling, right? Who is this man? Even the wind and waves obey him. They're absolutely terrified. Fear of fear. But not of the storm anymore. Because they're seeing who Jesus is. That's it. That's all we get. Luke 8 says, so they arrived in the land. Mark, Matthew 8 says, when Jesus arrived on the other side. And Mark 5, so they arrived on the other side. That's it. That's all we get. You know what? I think there was so much more that happened. I think the disciples thought about and talked about it and rehearsed Old Testament scriptures even if they didn't think about him on the boat. I think they talked about it amongst one another. You know, in the Old Testament in Psalms when it says, we just saw that. He must be God. Can you hear? I, I, I've got chilled up thinking about it. I love thinking about those things. So the storm was over, all done, all is well. Peace be still, not for long. That's not the last storm, right? We saw it in days two and three. So what now what? Forecast for life is 100% chance of storms, and I added the S just in case you didn't get your notes right. Storms. Remember, it's a when and not if. John tells us, John 16, tells us that. James 1, 2 through 4 tells us that. Did I put those on your handout? I'm sorry, I can't remember. John 16, you can read. James 1, you can read. It's when troubles of any kind come your way. It's not an if, it's a when. And sure enough, again, another storm. Again, she gave us three so what now what's just for those two and three days. So what I'd like to do is do some so what now what's, kind of combining both of those miracles all three days. So what now what? What do I learn about God? God is with me. You know what? You can put pretty much any preposition there. God is before me. God is behind me. God is above me. God is around me. God is with me. God is at peace. And I cu coupled with this with God is my peace. He's completely sleeping in the storm. Isn't it wonderful to know that God doesn't get frantic about anything? Nothing. Nothing takes him by surprise. He's not worried. He's not wondering about the plan. God is my peace. God responds perfectly in perfect timing. In this case, immediately. Note, in the first water miracle, Jesus wakes up and immediately calms that storm. But in the second miracle that we studied, he lets the storm go on. There's a lot of could-haves here. You know what? He could have calmed that storm. Remember, it says that he... While he's praying, he, he realizes they're struggling on the water. He could have, where he was praying, calmed the sea. He could have walked down on the shore and calmed the sea from the shore. He could have, as he stepped into the water, calmed the sea. 
You realize he walked across the waves, right? So the sea's still, whoa, whoa, whoa. Here comes Jesus walking on the sea. He's not walking across this glass. That's not what's happening. Now, he could have stopped it when Peter stepped out into, now, wouldn't that have been really cool? Because it had been like in the Old Testament in the Jordan River when they stepped in, when they stepped in the waters, pardon He could have done that. That would have been really dramatic and made a point of just have they step out of the boat, right? <laughs> He didn't do any of that. He had Peter walk across in the waves, too. When did Jesus stop the storm? When they got back in the boat. I don't know who said it, but I heard it from over there. When they got back in the boat is when Jesus stopped the storm. Look what all of us would have missed out if Jesus would have stopped the storm when he was praying. I would have missed out. The disciples would have missed out. Peter really would have missed out. All right. We just must move. Okay. 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 So, yeah, I started this on the top. So, for real, I will do this. True confession. In my own notes, I write, I answer my so what now what question. I make comments on them, and I was so convicted by this one. And, And I felt so strongly shared. And I'm like, no, Lord, we won't have time. And no. So, this is my true confession for my own personal notes. His lack of responding how I think he should, when I think he should, is no indicator of his care, his compassion, his ability, his power. Actually, his lack of responding how I think he should, when I think he should, is no indicator of anything except that I'm wrong on how and when he should respond. So yeah. There's that in me. I'm sorry, right. this is my last time talking to you. They can't fire me. <laughs> his timing, his actions, always perfect. God is sovereign over his creation. You can read about that in Colossians 1. He's not just creator, he's sustainer. God wants me to be full of faith, not of fear. And the second miracle, when he tells him, do not be afraid, Why? Because the storm's not really that bad. It's, no, there's only one reason. It is I. Remember, he is my peace. So we're back to the very first thing. God is with me. God is my peace. You see, it's a wonderful, beautiful cycle. Before we are too hard on the disciples, notice what they did in their desperate moment. They do go to him. They do stay with him. They trust him. Yeah, their trust isn't perfect. But they trust him. And look at how Peter's strength, Peter's faith was strengthened. And you know the disciples' faith was strengthened too, even though it wasn't perfect trust. That's encouraging to me. God doesn't waste a storm. God does not waste a storm. So what now? What am I living fully in the peace of God today? A quick comment on this. Living in the rhythm of rest, day four, is part of living fully in the peace of God. The God of peace, I just was struck by the Trinity here. The God of peace, you can read those scriptures, Romans 6, 1 Thessalonians 5, and Hebrews 13, all have that phrase, God of peace. Jesus, our peace, Romans 5, 1, and John 14, 27. And then the fruit of the peace of the Holy Spirit is in Galatians 5. And then I put on there the blessing and prayer for believers. Notice all of the greeting prayers and the letters for grace and peace. 
That was a yes or no, so what, now what? So we always have to go deeper. If I can ever answer a so what, now what question that I ask with a yes or no, that means I have another question to ask. So how can I live fully in the peace of God today? If this is your challenge, I just want to share an Old Testament and New Testament verse with you because of the power of his word, not because it's a bada-bing, bada-boom, live in peace, but the power of his word. This next picture is not going to look very peaceful, but this is, for me, in my mind, a picture of 1 Peter 5, 7. Many of you probably had it memorized. Maybe some of you from the good old King James, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. The word cast is actually a wrestling term. It means to throw or hurl. So as a wrestler does to another wrestler, as they slam him down on the mat, that's what, that's what we are encouraged to do with our cares. That violently, give them to him. Why? Because he's God and he can handle it. And why? There's another why. Because he cares for you. The very thing the disciples accused him of not doing, he does. He does care for you. Okay, let's keep going. And um, One more from the New Testament. Look at how practical this verse is. There's a don't. What's the don't? Don't worry about anything. Oh, wow, we don't even get a loophole. <laughs> and a do. What's the do? Pray. Uh, again, no loophole. Pray about everything. And then there's a how explanation regarding prayer. Tell God what you need. That means be honest. And thank him for all he has done. That means remember who he is. And then there's a promise. Then you will experience God's peace. There it is, right there. Beyond our understanding and a guard for my heart and my mind as I live in Christ Jesus. Do you know that old Sunday school song, I've Got Peace Like a River? Do you remember singing that? I've got joy like a fountain. That comes from Isaiah 48, 17, and 18. Look it up. It's in your handouts there for you. Hint, it's tied to listening and obeying. And then Isaiah 48, 17 through 18. You can look that up again on your own. Isaiah 26, I did do that one. You will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. Trust in the Lord always, for the Lord God is the eternal rock. I just want to say, if this is an area that you're struggling with, let me encourage you. I would say memorize it, but women especially, oh, look at my rock. Okay, just whatever. Don't memorize it. I don't care. Do this. Get two index cards and write it on two index cards. And you put them two places where you are during your day. And you speak the words aloud one time in the morning and one time at night. And do that for one week. It's not like some, you know, weird thing you're saying. Over. No. Yeah. Isaiah 26. Three and four. I want us to close a little different way today. On your handout, I have put a scripture. Um, do you see Second Peter one and two right there? I want you to take a minute to read it because I don't want to ever ask you to repeat something you haven't read. Read that real quickly, please, to yourself. Now I want you to look at your neighbor. Don't worry about your handout. Look at your neighbor, and some of you that are on the end, you might need to do a threesome. Don't leave anybody out. Eyeballs to eyeballs. And I want you to pray for her. 
as you repeat after me. So you don't need to look at your handout. Look at, you should be looking at somebody's eyeballs. You do not need your handout. You just need your ears. Oh my goodness, you can't tell a group of women to do anything. All right, here we go. Pray this over her. You both pray it together. Repeat after me. May God give you more and more grace and peace. As you grow in your knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. As you grow in your knowledge of Jesus our Lord. Amen. You're dismissed. You did pretty well. It was a long ending. Thank you, ladies. Let's go by that. It's my bathroom.